Hello, and welcome to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Looking forward to a really fun couple hours, because Joe Heschmeyer's here, and we're going to do open forum. Uh, we love talking about the Catholic faith. Joe and I are both Catholic. We're not trying to hide that, but if you, you don't have to be a Catholic to call us. If you want to say, hey, why do you Catholics do this or that? We'd love to talk about that. Or maybe you're a Catholic who says, hey, why do we Catholics do this or that? That's fine as well. 888-318-7884. Got a question about Jesus, about the Bible, about the history of the Church, about the doctrines of the Church, morality, whatever it is. It's an open forum today on Catholic Answers Live, 888-318-7884. Joe Heschmeyer, a renowned expert on the Catholic faith. Those are not my words. I'm quoting someone. Uh, We'll explain who I'm quoting uh, in a moment. Uh, Joe Heschmeyer, welcome uh, to the program. Thank you. Although I would I would quibble with your description. I don't think you're quoting someone. You know, that's true. I'm not actually quoting someone, uh, but we'll have to yes. explain that in a moment as well. Uh, there's uh, That's an important uh, metaphysical distinction to make. Uh, Joe, however, I cannot go on without mentioning you're wearing a, a coat, a suit coat today, and I think you look just marvelous. But I will say this as a critique. I think that that coat washes you out just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> My wife will be very thrilled to hear you say that. <laughs> so before the show, I uh, had a moment of generosity and said that it looked nice Rare that I was wearing a suit coat. Exactly. And, and I told him, my wife hates this jacket <laughs> and uh, was very displeased when I put it on. She begrudgingly admitted that it worked with my shirt, but said, I hate that color on you. It washes you out. And so I thought, well, you know, you left it in the closet where I could find it. Uh, you should have thrown it away. Or That's your job. It away. But throw it away. If you don't want him to have it, throw it away. There's all sorts of clothes that go missing, and she hopes it will discourage me from buying <laughs> ugly clothes. But it does the opposite. Well, I actually think you look very nice today, uh, Joe. Okay. Uh, you know, for you. 888-318-7884 <laughs> is the number. 888-318-7884. Uh, Joe, occasionally— you and I engage in what is loosely referred to as banter. And yes. they have a new thing. Uh, 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 this is to explain that mysterious statement, whether I was quoting a, someone who is not a someone. They have a thing now uh, called artificial intelligence. And some of the young geniuses around here, primarily Zach, who is about to be married. Zach is getting married next month. Uh, and he's one of those, you know, Zach is, as everybody knows, one of those super high intelligence people who can just not, he, he never can just, uh, you know, uh, leave well enough alone. He's got to find some new thing. And he found AI. And so he said to the AI, uh, write an intro for Joe Heschmeyer on Catholic Answers Live about how he is good at answering tough questions. And then this is what the AI wrote, artificial intelligence on the internet. It searches the internet, I guess, and in an about... A fraction of a second, it comes up with an introduction for you that I'm supposed to read on the air. And some of these things are freakish, but <clears throat> I will now introduce you, Joe, as the as Skynet wants me to introduce you. This is Skynet's introduce, introduction of Joe Heschmeyer. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, first of all, never would I say ladies and gentlemen. So right there, <laughs> right out of the box, no, but... Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Joe Heschmeyer to the show. Joe is a renowned expert on the Catholic faith and is known for his ability to skillfully and clearly address even the toughest questions on the topic. He has dedicated his career to studying and explaining the Catholic Church's teachings, and his deep understanding of the subject matter makes him an invaluable asset to our program. 
So without further ado, another another thing I would never say without further ado. Uh, let's give a warm welcome to Joe Heschmeyer. I guess the AI thinks that you clap or something on the radio, so I'll do the clapping for the audience, but welcome, Joe. <laughs> Thanks. I I think I can very faintly hear all of the colors, you know, clapping or, you know, oh, can you hear driving that? around yeah. the show, yeah. clapping on the road. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah so the, they, they went on to ask, right? This is what they asked the artificial intelligence machine to this do. This is Zach, who is, who is a <clears throat> human Zach, being. Who ha- who's yes. has very high intelligence himself. Write a verbal exchange of witty banter between Catholic Answers Live host Cy Kellett and Catholic Answers staff apologist Joe Heschmeyer. So the artificial intelligence went into the internet, I guess, and, and found transcripts of us, and then it wrote witty banter between the two of us. Uh, and, and, it, and it wrote it in the form of a script. So it says, host Cy Kellett, and then there's what I say, and then it says Joe Heschmeyer, and then it says Cy Kellett. You Joe. know what? If you want to do it together, I will, I will read my right. part if you want to read your part. All right. In fact, if you want to do the rest of the show pre-scripted by AI, we could, yeah. we could try that next This time. is you and I opening the show according to an artificial intelligence computer. That's what we're about to do. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, no, that's not, that's not part of it. Uh, Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm your host, Cy Kellett, and I'm joined today by one of our staff apologists, Joe Heschmeyer. Joe, I hear you have a few answers for some tough questions we've been getting from our listeners. Cy, tough questions are my bread and butter. I live for this stuff. (laughs) My bread and butter. Uh, Well, let's see if you're really as good as you say you are. Our first caller is on the line, and they want to know, why does the church oppose contraception? Wait, break. I have to take a break. So the AI searches the internet, and it thinks that the primary thing you and I talk about, Joe, is contraception. Like, that's the number one thought. Well, that's probably what they're going to tackle. So, Well, I also like that instead of an actual caller calling in, you're just like, let me just tell you what this caller wanted to ask. I know, right? We don't, we don't go to the caller. We just, uh, okay, so I'm gonna, I'll do my part again, and then you can do your part. Well, let's see if you're really as good as you say you are. Our first caller is I love, on— I love that you're even a jerk in AI. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The AI kind of makes me— the, ex- All right, I'm starting again, Joe. Now you've upset me. Well, let's see if you're really as good as you say you are. Our first caller is on the line, and they want to know, why does the church oppose contraception? That's a great question, Cy. <laughs> the church's opposition to contraception is rooted in the belief that every act of sexual intercourse should be open to the possibility of new life. Contraceptives fundamentally separate the unitive and procreative aspects of sex, breaking the bond of love that God intended for married couples. First of all, when they when they showed me that that's what the computer said, I was like, this computer is really good at explaining the Catholic yes. faith. Like, this I, computer I think, is better than 90% of Catholics that, at explaining contraception. Like, wasn't that good? That was legitimately a good answer. It's legitimately a good answer. I was, and, I was honored to have it, my name next to an answer clearer than what I probably would have said to that. Right. It's nice, and it's compact, and it's it's direct, and it addresses the question. So uh, let's go on with the with the with um, with what the AI had to say about that. Okay, Joe, you're off to a good start. <laughs> but can you explain it in a way that even I can understand? Again, I am offended <laughs> that even the AI thinks I'm dumb. Like, <laughs> can you explain it in a way that even I can understand? <laughs> I'm mad at the well, AI uh, now. Go ahead. Exactly. Go ahead, Joe. Well, you know, 
I don't know where it's gleaning all of these impressions about our character, but it's it's a very advanced computer. I can't. Who am I to second judge it? Well, so I think of it this way. God designed sex to be a way for husband and wife to express their love for each other and to create new life. The contraceptives treat babies as a problem to be avoided instead of a blessing to be welcomed. The church's position is that this is not in line with God's plan for marriage and family life. Again, the AI is better than most humans at explaining the church's... <laughs> the AI is really a really good Catholic. It doesn't like me, but it's a really good Catholic. I know a few Catholics who fall in that category. <laughs> All right, Joe. I think it's time we go to calls, Joe. There is another one where it asked about uh, uh, why, um, why we call Mary the mother of God. But I'm I'm gonna save oh, that. Well, actually, one. before we get, I want to at least give what you say in response. Wow, that was actually pretty clear. I might even be able to explain it to my mother-in-law. Like you're just gratuitously insulting in the anybody. The AI script that it was, yeah. Like I insult my mother-in-law. God rest her soul. Like the AI doesn't know that my mother-in-law has passed, but I'm just a jerk to everybody. That's how the artificial intelligence, which has searched the entire internet, has decided. <laughs> wow, that's pretty clear. I might even be able to explain it to my mother-in-law. Ha ha ha. So apparently I make mother-in-law jokes. I say weird things like without further ado. That's my that's my shtick. I ha we have to go to a break, Joe. When we come back, we'll let real people talk to you, but I have to say the AI is pretty pretty impressive. And if anybody thinks we're not being serious, we're quite serious. This is actually written by a computer that uh made some kind of a, a attempt to uh imitate Joe and I. And I thought it did a, a, it made a better Joe than Joe, and it made a worse me than me. That's where I'm leaving this, Joe. That's what I'm taking away from this. We'll be right back with actual human beings on Catholic Answers Live. Hang on. Catholic Answers Live will return in a moment. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite Monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. It's really awe-inspiring to know that Take Two with Jerry and Debbie has the impact that it does. We know from what our listeners share on the air, but also from corresponding with them outside of the show via email and social media. There's no better feeling than knowing you've helped someone, maybe many people at a time, work through various situations and to more clearly see God's purpose and plan for their lives. Take Two with Jerry and Debbie. Tomorrow, noon Eastern on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kelly, your host. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest, and the mysterious power behind all of this is an artificial intelligence machine. At least it was uh, for the first segment, but uh, now we will go to real, actual human callers. But it, it was a bit uncanny uh, how good that AI was at, at doing the show. Uh, it's somewhat frightening to me. I mean, I, I really do—I mean, there are, I'm sure, in the long run, Joe, moral implications to all of this, because— there's uh, the machines um, uh, will be able to fool us and that will have yeah. very negative consequences for people's ability to trust in the world around them 
Oh, you know, the uh, the so-called Turing test? I don't know how familiar you are with this, but Alan Turing proposed a test. Wait, wait. That you Just can explain tell... it in a way that even my mother-in-law could understand, okay? <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, So thanks. the Turing test is a test of artificial intelligence, which is can it fool uh, a human on the other end where they can't tell if they're talking to a computer or talking to a human being. And it's actually been passed multiple times. It was passed, I think, a couple decades ago with a very simple, like insult generator where it turns out that there's certain modes where if you just teach it to say rude things the people get so mad they don't realize that like oh that could literally just be a script uh and it just is saying these insulting things so yeah the turing test we've blown past that uh but people still talk about it like that's the next kind of hurdle to clear uh, all right, I'm going to go to the phones, but I will tell you this just uh, to entice uh, people. Maybe we'll publish it somewhere. Zach also asked the computer, the AI that can search the entire Internet, to uh, produce a debate between Taylor Marshall and Father James Martin on – what was it on how to receive communion? or, or Reverence and Mass. Uh, reverence and Mass. Oh, okay, yeah. on Reverence and the Mass. Yeah, they did the pineapples in, on pizza too. But uh, so And so I have not read the transcript of that one, but apparently it's quite a fascinating debate between – Fake Taylor Marshall and fake Father James Martin debating how to be reverent at, at Mass. All right, Joe, let's go to the phones. You ready? Yeah. Jack in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. You are numero uno today, Jack. Glad you're here. Go ahead with your question for Joe. Thanks so much for uh, having me. I will definitely be Googling what that uh, what that debate looks like after this, for sure. I'll be. All right, well, I'll have to figure trip. out somewhere where we can post it. <laughs> Um, great. But my, uh, so my question is, uh, we are, uh, Roman Catholics, my family and I, uh, but we have been attending a, uh, Eastern Byzantine Catholic parish for a couple of months now and really have, uh, had a lot of spiritual growth from it. And, uh, we're actually debating on if we wanted to make this our parish or not. So my, my question is, is one, am I allowed to make a Eastern Catholic uh, parish, my parish as a Westerner, and then also, what would that implications be for my kids who are coming up on sacrament ages? Uh, so First Communion, obviously in the East, they receive all of their uh, sacraments of initiation at baptism. So what would that look for uh, that we would need to do? Would we have to go back to the Latin church, or the, the, the nor- normal church that we would go to, to do First Communion prep, or um, any guidance there would be be helpful. Great. No, that's, that's a fantastic question. And here we want to create a little bit of a distinction. Parish registration is not a thing in canon law. So whether you're registered at a parish or not, uh, you won't find canon law that governs that because that's, that's a made-up thing that we do here for uh, efficiency reasons, really. In the same way that, like, getting on the parish's email list, there's no canon law on that because you do it or you don't do it. Uh, so there are those. That's one thing. The other thing is actual enrollment in the church, and that's a different thing. And so enrollment in the church is a real canonical idea that you actually are, by virtue of baptism or because you've transferred rights a member of the Latin Rite or another what's called the Ritual Church. And as you kind of alluded to, that enrollment has really important implications for uh, marriage law, for when and how you receive the sacraments, and all kinds of questions kind of come up there. So 
you, by virtue of the church into which you're baptized, uh, are, in your case, uh, a member of the Latin church. And Canon 111 and 112 kind of lay this out. So in Canon 111, uh, your children, because both you and your wife, I assume, are members of the Latin church, uh, your children are also members of the Latin church upon baptism, even if they're baptized, you know, Marianite or Byzantine, whatever it is. They, they are canonically Latin Catholics. They, you and they have the same obligations because it would be chaotic if, if you've got different liturgical calendars at home. You know, the kids are, are celebrating Great Lent and you're not even in Lent yet or, or something like that. You know, it, it would be a mess. Uh, but then after you've been baptized, uh, Canon 111, Section 2 says anyone who— Oh, sorry. Uh, can, uh, section 2 of 111 deals with those who are being baptized later on uh, get to pick kind of where and how they want to be baptized when they're first entering the church. That doesn't apply in your case. It doesn't sound like. Uh, canon 112 is the one, but if you're enrolled in one church, how do you join another church? And the short answer is that you do it either with the permission of the Vatican or at the time of marriage. If you're marrying someone of a different right, that's a time in which you can uh, you can switch over. Or if there's kids who have, you know, one parent is one and one are the other. Uh, but then it says very clearly, Canon 112, Section 2. The practice, however prolonged, of receiving the sacraments according to the right of another ritual church, sui juris, that means of its own law, does not entail enrollment in that church. So you could spend the rest of your life going faithfully every Sunday, every day, to a Byzantine parish, to a Marianite parish, whatever the case may be. And without some formal act of enrollment, uh, you don't become canonically a member of that church, and neither do your children. And and so the reason that matters, as I've kind of alluded to, are certain sacramental things. So when you get married, that's an important one to know what uh, canon law am I bound by? What canon law is the person I'm and wanting to be married bound by? And is there anything we need to know? Because if you marry someone who's an Eastern Catholic, it has to be in an Eastern Catholic church, or you need a dispensation uh, on their side. We don't have that kind of restriction, but there are special ways of kind of protecting the Eastern Rite so they don't get totally uh, swallowed up by the Latin Rite, because we're about nine times bigger than all of the Eastern rites put together. And so to make sure they don't go extinct, there's special canonical provisions around things like marriage. The other is, as you said, uh, if your children are going to a parish where everyone around them has already uh, received First Communion with baptism, they've already received confirmation, then you really have to take it upon yourself to make sure that at the right age, they're receiving baptism, or excuse me, First Communion preparation and confirmation preparation. And it won't be as, as natural as, well, this is when the parish does it. So you have a few more kind of obligations and responsibilities just to be mindful of uh, as a parent, but there, you are not bound to only go to a Latin Rite service. Uh, you're not bound to only go to the Mass instead of the Divine Liturgy, but you you are canonically Latin, and, and there are a few implications to that. Is that clear? Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So um, at this point, I mean, we're still just kind of discerning and praying with this and, and all of that, <laughs> but... Uh, that is that definitely gives me a lot of a lot of guidance. So I really appreciate that. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, wonderful. So, thanks. <laughs> thanks very much for the call. Absolutely. Hopefully, your mother-in-law could understand that. <laughs> Come on, not Joe. Jack's mother-in-law <laughs> is unlike my mother-in-law. Apparently, is a perfectly intelligent woman. Uh, the somebody on uh, YouTube says they don't even believe this is real video of us. They think this is just all deep fake. 
<laughs> I would hope that if there was a deep fake video, they could do a better job than this. You know, Abraham Lincoln yeah. was told he was a two-faced, and he said, if I was two-faced, would I choose this one? <laughs> yeah, that's right. If I was going to be a deep fake, would I choose this? Uh, Dale in West Virginia watching on YouTube. You are up next. Dale, go ahead with your question for Joe. Hello, Cy and Joe. Um, Joe, you're one of my favorites. I have a couple of your books. However... Uh, in a recent episode, I did. Uh, Joe said that uh, in responding to a call, uh, let the person know that Second Maccabees is not in uh, Protestant or ancient Jewish Bibles. And the thought in my head, of course, was that it's not in modern. It wasn't in ancient Jewish Bibles either. I'm sorry, he said it wasn't in modern Jewish Bibles. And so my question is, as a Protestant who loves listening to the show but also frequently argues with it, um, but I do love your banter and, and I do enjoy the show, I've spent a lot of time on the Deuterocanonicals. I'm familiar with the history mm-hmm. and the councils and popes, cardinals, uh, mm-hmm. medieval commentaries and all that that did not accept them and said it were canonical, and I'm, a, I'm aware of councils that said they were canonical. Is there any information, Joe, that you can give me that might move the needle for me, who, who feels like I've seen and read and heard it all on this topic, toward the Catholic position? I am open to the Catholic Church, but the Deuterocanonicals are a big stumbling block. I believe that the uh, Council of Trent made a mistake there in reaction to the Reformation. So anything you can give me that might help, Joe? Uh, my pleasure. I, I'm happy to accept that challenge. First of all, love that you call on the show. I also love that you do the thing I do where you listen to people you argue with while you're listening to. I <laughs> I just feel less crazy to hear someone else does that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah actually, I, I, let me, I think you guys are great people. So. Oh, no, thank you. I I, pre- yeah. I, I already AI like doesn't. So <laughs> AI thinks I'm a jerk. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, Joe, you know, Joe's you make everybody else look good. <laughs> Joe's a very bright guy. He's one of my favorites, and uh, you know, so oh, that I'll, I'll put that out there. Like I said, I enjoyed I have a couple of your books. I've read several times and really enjoy. So go ahead. Oh, thanks. Well, I, I'll give you a short answer. I'm going to point you to a longer answer. If you go to shamelessjoe.com, shamelessjoe.com, that'll actually take you to a page on on the Catholic Answers website for my new podcast. And the new podcast is called Shameless Popery. But in case people don't want to try I've to spell popery. Oh, good. Well, the very first episode is called The Bible in the Time of Jesus, and it explores this question about what did the Bible look like at the time of Jesus? Because the problem is there isn't a single Jewish Bible in Jesus's day. And so today, you know, when you talk about the Jewish Bible, you're talking about the Tanakh, which is a a Hebrew acronym that stands for the law, the Torah, uh, the prophets, and the writings. But at the time of Jesus, the law and the prophets are very clearly set by most Jews. Some, like the Samaritans, still object to uh, the prophets. And then some, if you consider the Samaritans Jews, it's a little complicated. They've got their own version of the Torah. But basically, the Torah and the prophets are are set, uh, the law and the prophets. And so Jesus refers very regularly to the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. This third section called the writings was a little more amorphous at the time. And so there wasn't universal agreement about which books did and didn't belong in the writings section. And so you'll find uh, books like Sirach quoted in the Tom- like in the Jewish Talmud as scripture, explicitly saying that it's scripture, quoting it and putting it in the writing section. And then you'll find other books like the Song of Songs uh, and Esther, 
uh, and Ecclesiastes, which were viewed as not part of the writing section. So the Jewish Bible isn't actually set until probably about the third century. There's some controversy about the dating, but it's almost certainly set well after the time of Christ. Uh, you'll find people like Josephus who argue for what becomes uh, the Jewish Bible in the late first century, but you won't find any clear evidence at the time of Jesus or before the time of Jesus that said, here were the books that were recognized in Judaism. Uh, in the, and so there's a much more amorphous kind of boundary. So all that's to say, some Jews very clearly treated first and second Maccabees as inspired scripture. When Origen is writing about which books the Jews of his day hold, he includes most of the books that are in the modern Jewish Bible, and that also includes first and second Maccabees, and actually tells us what the Hebrew name for those books was. That's about the year 200. So we know some Jews considered first and second Maccabees to be inspired. We also know that first and second Maccabees are where the uh, Jewish holiday of Hanukkah comes from. You won't find Hanukkah in a modern Jewish or Protestant Old Testament. Uh, you will find it there. It's uh, what's called the Feast of Dedication, because it was the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated. And in John 10, we find Jesus celebrating the Feast of Dedication. So we know at the time of Jesus, this was considered a religious holiday, not the modern kind of version of Hanukkah as a festival of lights, but the Feast of Dedication in the temple, which uh, is coming from First and Second Maccabees. So that points to it having a status that it doesn't have today within Judaism or within Protestantism. So there's much more, like I said, that could be said about that. But the idea that, you know, Jews at the time of Jesus had the same Old Testament Protestants do today, there's not really any good evidence for that. Dale, I'd like to hear your uh, your, your response to what Joe had to say, and I want to uh, give you a book and some ideas uh, for some books, but uh, if you're going to have to hang on through the break. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we sure would like to. We'll do that right after this on Catholic Answers Live. If you're not a Bible scholar, the full message of how the Sunday Mass readings fit together can be tough to comprehend. Apologist Carlo Broussard is here to help. Join Carlo every Friday for the Sunday Catholic Word podcast. In each episode, he unpacks the scripture readings for that Sunday and brings them all together so you can better understand and defend the faith. Visit SundayCatholicWord.com to subscribe. That's SundayCatholicWord.com. The recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade was a monumental victory for the pro-life movement. But the fight is far from over. With our new booklet, Why We're Pro-Life, we have produced the perfect tool to prepare you to have peaceful and convincing conversations to shed light on the truth about human life from conception to natural death. Catholic Answers is printing millions of copies of this booklet, and we plan simply to give them away. You can help us in two ways. First, by generously supporting this project. 25 cents prints one book, $2,500 prints 10,000, and so on. Second, by helping us distribute the booklet through your parish, your school, or the pro-life ministry you work with. Catholic Answers is going to blanket the country with why we're pro-life, but only if you step up and help us. Thank you so much. For more information, visit whyweareprolife.com. As a child, the great theologian Thomas Aquinas asked, What is God? Best-selling author Kevin Vost's new book follows the mature thought of Aquinas in answering that question. 
In clear and approachable fashion, What is God examines God's attributes and considers questions about Him that have vexed mankind for centuries. Order your copy of What is God today at shop.catholic.com or ask for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. Hi, this is Johnette Williams. We bring you the truth of the Catholic faith on Women of Grace tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern here on EWTN Radio. Now, back to Catholic Answers Live. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live, heading right back to the conversation we were just engaged in, but I do need to remind you that over at shop.catholic.com, we're having that 23-23-23 New Year's special for uh, the dawn of the new year, 2023. Spend $23 or more in the online shop, shop.catholic.com, then enter the promo code New Year at checkout, and you save 23%. It's that easy. Just don't forget the promo code New Year when you check out at shop.catholic.com. Joe Heschmeyer is our guest, and on the phone is uh, Dale in West Virginia, and we're talking about the place that the that certain books like the uh, the third book of uh, Maccabees uh, ha- have in the Bible and and uh, oh, no first and second Maccabees first and second Ma- uh, 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 is that right Dale first and second Maccabees is that what you said yeah what yeah. what book have you been reading what uh, Bible I, have you been reading I know because <laughs> there is a third Maccabees but it's not in anybody's so Bible right um, but uh, but the book I wanted to recommend to you Dale was um, uh, why Catholic Bibles are bigger by Gary Machuda. And I don't know if you've seen that one, but I, I, I'd be happy to send it to you because we publish it. And, uh, and I just want to recommend Gary Machuda as a resource on this for uh, a real, someone who has done oh, every— ben. Oh, you know him? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. His, his YouTube channel, his debate with James White, I've watched so many times. Oh, okay, um, okay. Oh, yeah, very—and and him on other podcasts. Oh, yeah, very familiar, uh, very familiar with Gary Machuda, and just nothing can— Nothing, you know, seems to get me across the line. And I will say, um, Joe's point about Hanukkah, I thought, was a good one. Um, the historical issues in the book of Judith have been particularly problematic for me, or scandalous for me, uh, historical, factual issues in in Judith. Um, so if, if it weren't for things like that, it'd probably be easier to swallow. But, like, the, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, reigning in... Uh, um, Nineveh, or you know, I don't remember the details, but uh, there's you know, the temple being, you know, or you know, supposedly rebuilt before it was actually destroyed, or possibly vice versa. I'm sure, I'm sure Joe knows exactly what I'm talking about. So that that have been particularly um, problematic, like the historical issues in Judith or whatever, has kind of been. But so with that compared to lots of people not considering them canonical, uh, like medieval commentaries and. Cardinal Cayetan and Jimenez and Pope Gregory, I believe, and lots, lots of others down through Church Fathers. It's just been kind of wishy-washy, and so I've always had the—I've long had the opinion that those that did accept it and councils that did accept it did so um, did so out of, you know, for reasons of tradition or ignorance. They just simply didn't know. But uh, so go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I would say there is a real sense in which you have two categories of books— uh, in both the Old and New Testament, there are some books that are really uncontroversial, and then there are some books that are more controversial. These are called the spoken against books, anti-legomena in Greek. Um, that these these are the books that are more 
uh, disputed. And so books like Second Peter, the book of Revelation, uh, Hebrews, these are going to be like that in the New Testament. And then, yeah, books like Judith, First and Second Maccabees and the like are like that in the Old Testament. So I would just say two very basic things. First, be very careful not to have a different standard for the books that you accept and the books that you reject. If you say, uh, I'm not going to accept any book of the Bible where it doesn't agree with modern history, uh, that's a fine standard, but just know that you would have to apply that consistently and logically and say, all right, well, historians don't believe in the Exodus, so I have to throw out Exodus. Or historians don't believe in this, that, or the other thing. And so if the standard is that, that anything that looks like an error historically, geographically, uh, whatever the case, if that's the standard, if you say, I'll only accept you know, Bibles that agree with modern scholarship, you're going to have a very small Bible. So that's one way you could go. I would just say whatever standard you hold, be principled and just have one standard and not one standard for books you accept and one for books that you reject. The second oh, go ahead, Joe. is uh, that historically there's a role for the church. That if you want to know which books are in the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell you that. The church tells you that. And when I say the church tells you that, I don't just mean in a top-down kind of way. A lot of the process of figuring out which books are and aren't in the Bible is much more kind of bottom-up, that uh, you know, local councils will confirm what people had kind of figured out on the ground about which books do and don't belong. And so ultimately, we're not just trusting in the authority of the church, we're trusting in the authority of God's revelation. And so this is a point, I actually make this point in the first episode of of the podcast, Shameless Popery, if you go check it out, that James White, of all people, actually makes really beautifully, where he just says, it, we have to trust that the same God uh, who reveals himself also makes clear what that revelation is. And I'm paraphrasing him, he, he may say it somewhat differently, but the idea is really simple. If you say God revealed himself, but he didn't tell us which books were and weren't his revelation, or if, or if God revealed himself, but nobody understood what he was trying to say to us, that's a failure on the part of revelation. Not that someone's going to misinterpret the Bible. That's always going to happen. But if nobody knows which books are and are in the Bible, or if no one knows what the books of the Bible mean, then God hasn't really revealed himself. Re Revelation means unveiling. Like, what is God actually unveiling? Well, he's unveiling himself, and he's unveiling the truth about himself. And so it's not enough for him to give us letters. He has to give us meaning. And so if no one understood the meaning of the Bible, or if no one understood even which books were and weren't in the Bible— then he hasn't really revealed himself. So I'd say on the, on the basis of the logic of revelation, that we have to believe that the God who chooses to reveal himself didn't trick the entire church into accepting the wrong Bible. Uh, and that's what you would have to believe to hold the 66-book canon, that, that virtually everyone from, say, 500 to 1,500 of just ordinary Christian believers— didn't know what books were in the Bible. In fact, they were confident on the basis of the authority of the church that there were 73 books in the Bible, and they'd been tricked, and they, they were wrong. In the same way that if someone came along today and said, hey, there's actually only 50 books in the Bible, everybody's wrong except for me, you would look at that person and say, that's ridiculous, that's an outrageous position. Well, I think you can say something similar, because ultimately it's not about trusting this church theologian or that council. It's about trusting, does God know how to reveal himself or not? 
Dale, uh, we will leave it there. Thank you very, very much for the call. It was a wonderful conversation. I, I, I misspoke before. I, I hope he calls back. That was I, I love Dale. <laughs> I, I just want to say, I, I said uh, 3rd Maccabees is not in anyone's Bible. That was shorthand. It's not in a Protestant or a Catholic Bible, but of course, Armenian Catholics and Coptic Catholics or Christians uh, uh, and, and some other Eastern churches have 3rd Maccabees. So I, if you are among those, I apologize. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant that neither Protestants nor Catholics have it in their Bible. I'm going to go to John in Switzerland watching on YouTube. Uh, John, uh, thank you very much uh, for the call. Go ahead with your question for Joe. Hey, guys. First of all, I'm a simple man. I see Joe Heschmeyer. I call. So I want I like to quickly... <laughs> Again, uh, thank you for your work, because uh, I know I called a few times that I didn't thank you last times, but I wanted to tell you again how you changed many things in my life and in my family, too. So thank you, Catholic Answers. You, did, you always do an amazing job. Um, my, questions, my question is this. I've been debating with Protestants a lot, uh, let's say, lately, and I admit that the challenge is, isn't really exciting anymore. I feel like I've kind of run the whole thing again and again, and I decided to like tackle the orthodox position lately and raise the bar a little bit. And the last time I called, we spoke about how the orthodox could venerate popes and what it said about the historical reality of, of uh, the schism. And I thought the orthodox, until that moment, basically the, the issue was about the filioque and some details about purgatory or Mary or the papacy, of course. And then I started uh, lately to look closely at Palamism, and <laughs> huh. my gosh, I didn't realize how, mm -hmm. how bad that was. And I uh, especially uh, considered the distinction between essence and energies. And to summarize my question, I'm going to, to it right now. Knowing that the sacraments of the Orthodox are valid because of the apostolic success, succession, but they are also... Mm -hmm. a, a pretty serious state of heresy, I think. How far can they push? How 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 far can people get away from the theology of the church and its uh, authority before they start compromising the validity of their sacraments? Is there such a a, a limit? Is there a rule? Is there it, 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 does it has to be decided by a council or a pope? How, how does that work? I have no idea. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, so. Let's make a few important distinctions. So speaking very broadly, if someone rejects uh, something related to the priesthood, that's going to be a pretty direct attack on sacramental efficacy, right? Like if you say, I don't believe in the real presence and I don't believe the mass is a sacrifice, and then you go and try to celebrate mass, well, you're not really celebrating mass because you've denied the thing that you claim you're trying to do. This was the issue uh, within... The Eastern, uh, within, excuse me, the Anglican Church, that Anglicans initially had valid sacraments because they had a valid priesthood. You know, the the Church in England uh, mostly broke away uh, at the King's orders from the Roman Catholic Church, and they were still priests, they were still bishops. But then over time, uh, heretical theology came in, and it, the issue wasn't just that it was heretical theology, but heretical theology that denied the priesthood. And so those kind of attacks are really if you will, sort of existential attacks. Well, likewise, uh, something like a denial of the Trinity is going to be an existential attack on Christianity. And so someone in those cases, if they say, I don't believe Jesus is God, well, then whatever they're doing in baptism, they're not offering a Trinitarian baptism. They're not, you know, then you, you don't have valid sacraments there. So those are really kind of serious issues. Those 
would be th things that would render a sacrament invalid. Anything that undermines sacramental intent where you no longer believe in the thing that the sacrament does. Uh, but just being heretical about something else does not actually automatically uh, make it so your sacraments are invalid. That's the first issue. Like you could be wrong on some really important issue unrelated to the sacraments and still have valid sacraments. The second is, well, what do we make of Palamonism and in kind of the Eastern theology uh, about this? And so I would say just broadly, if the church hasn't condemned something uh, as heresy, we don't want to kind of do that in their place. I agree that the, the essence energies distinction is a very strange kind of view of what the beatific vision would, would look like from from my own understanding of this theology, I have not explored maybe in the same level and same depth that I should have. Uh, but it's worth acknowledging that even uh, within the kind of world of Catholic theologians, you're going to have different views about what the afterlife looks like for the simple reason that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. So you'll find some subtle distinctions between Aquinas and Bonaventure about the way uh, love and faith uh, work in heaven. Uh, and then you'll also find differences in terms of whether we continue to grow in knowledge, grow in love uh, for eternity. So you'll find theologians on both sides of this question. So someone getting something wrong uh, about the afterlife, particularly in an area that hasn't been condemned, doesn't invalidate, doesn't threaten uh, the sacraments. So the things that would set, threaten it would be anything that attacks at an existential order what it is to be Christian or uh, what it is to offer that particular sacrament, or what it is to be a priest. Those kind of things that are closely related to the sacraments uh, would be the things that you'd have to really watch out for. Okay, John? Yeah, thank you a lot. I, in my mind, uh, the, the distinction between essence and energy was a, a kind of attack on, Trini on the Trinity, but maybe I'm, g I'm a little too harsh on that. But I should dig... Uh, Dig more. Thank you very much for the answer. I mean, it may it may have some bad Trinitarian implications that are unintended, but the Eastern Orthodox would would heartily affirm belief in the Trinity. So it may be that they're yeah, okay. they're wrong on, on some some theology that's different than somebody who just says, "I deny the Trinity, I reject the Trinity," or you know something like that. And, uh, and the other thing about uh, Gregory is that lots of Catholics have called him a saint. So I, he's not a, saint, a right. canonized saint of the Catholic Church, but I think even Pope John Paul uh, II referred to him as Saint Gregory uh, Palamas. Um, uh, John, I'm going to say thanks because we got to go to a break. We'll be right back with more Joe Heschmeyer Open Forum on Catholic Answers Live. Hang on, we'll be right back with more Catholic Answers Live. Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. Do you love sharing the gospel and want to learn to be more effective? Join the St. Paul Street Evangelization Online School of Evangelization. You will learn to build bridges of trust and make disciples by befriending strangers, proclaiming the gospel, inviting people to the church, and praying with others. We'll ask for a pledge of financial support, but if you are unable to give, we'll give you a membership at no cost. Find out more and get involved today at streetevangelization.com. That's streetevangelization.com. 
EWTN, teaching the truth. I really can't get enough Catholic teaching now that I'm back. I've been back about eight, nine years. It, it was uh, due in part to Catholic radio, uh, television, and uh, learned so much. I get most of my news from EWTN. EWTN is just wonderful. I especially love the Sunday Masses. Both you guys were a magnificent resource in my journey to come into full communion with the Catholic Church, and thank you very much for being there. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kelly, your host, Joe Heschmeyer. Our guest, we were just discussing at the break how the fact of, of sanctity doesn't necessarily mean a person has uh, correct insights on everything. It's just interesting, the fact that we, we sometimes think a saint is a person who you could trust every word they said. Well, you could trust every word they said in the sense that they're not liars or something, but it doesn't mean the fact that you lived a, a holy and sanctified life doesn't mean that you always got everything correct. You know, you might have voted for the wrong person or you, you might have <laughs> backed the wrong, in one case, uh, in St. Vincent's case, backed the wrong pope, you know, back, ba- accidentally backed the anti-pope. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, and, and that one, of course, he changed his mind on, but uh, it, it doesn't mean you're necessarily a great theologian. It would be a horrible thing, actually, if you had to be a great theologian to be a saint, Joe. It's true. I mean, one of the things that I, I like to say is that salvation is not a theology quiz. You know, having good theology is really helpful for a lot of reasons, Be- for two reasons. One, because if you don't know God, you can't love him. Uh, and two, because if you love God, you want to know more about him. So that's, I think, just, I don't know, something to kind of bear in mind with this, but we don't want to ever reduce it, um, yeah, just, just to a theology quiz. No, because the basics of the good news are quite simple, and so even a child could be a saint, so long as they have um, ha- have uh, you know accepted in faith uh, um, the grace that God has given them. Uh, there's yes, nothing to, exactly. There's nothing so to... yeah, you know, a child who dies, you know, the the holy grandmother who was illiterate but lived a life of holiness and and loved Jesus, that you know. We, Again, it's just something to res- it's it's very tempting, and I think one of the reasons it's very tempting is because if you're uh, a very smart person or a person who likes to read a lot about theology, the idea that that's going to save your soul rather than actually needing to trust God and to love your neighbor, uh, you know, it's actually easier in a lot of ways to say, well, if you just read some more books, you'll go to heaven. Yeah, right, right. I, as soon as I, as soon as I get done with Aquinas, then I'll be ready for heaven. That is not how that works. Uh, but nope. you were because you were saying to me at the break. I said before we went to the break that John Paul had called Gregory Palamas a saint. You said that Benedict had called him. Well, I, I was saint. actually I was mistaken about oh, that. You... There was a, but it, it was actually the ecumenical patriarch. It was a joint thing, but it looks like it was uh, the Eastern Orthodox patriarch who called him. Which of course he's going to call him a saint. Yeah. But he was saying it in a in a talk with Benedict. Uh, before the, a group of bishops. Uh, let's go to Vincent in British Columbia, Canada, listening on Catholic.com. Vincent, go ahead with your question for Joe. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon hey, to you as well. Good afternoon. About, uh, uh, defending Vatican II teachings with regards to a lot of friends of mine attend Society of St. Pius X, and it seems like quite the... Uh, they're quite disturbed with most everything that came out of the Vatican Council and reject pretty much the whole council altogether. 
Is there any literature, or how do you defend uh, Vatican II and um, the subsequent teachings? That's a, it's a great question. So it's a very broad question, right? Like it, it would help to know what the very particular issues are that they struggle with. And Benedict XVI uh, famously described two ways of kind of understanding Vatican II, this hermeneutic of rupture or a hermeneutic of reform. It's sometimes called a hermeneutic of continuity. He uses reform. Uh, in other words, do we view Vatican II as building on what the church has always believed and responding to new problems in a new way, or do we view Vatican II as, as actually rejecting the history of the church uh, and trying to just you know create a new church with new teachings and the like? And it, it might be worth pointing out just the vote counts on the documents, because it's you know usually like 5,000 bishops to nine. Are we really going to believe that the bishops in the 1960s were so corrupt and so um, pagan or, or so unchristian, so un-Catholic, that they would readily just vote to replace Catholic teaching universally? Because people like Lefebvre uh, were in favor of the actual documents of Vatican II. Uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, the founder of SSPX, was not in favor of how Vatican II was implemented, uh, but that introduces a really important question. You can be in favor of the documents themselves and still say the implementation of the documents was rough, that it was at times unfaithful to the documents itself, uh, that it maybe caused more problems uh, than it solved. You know, all of those are are totally valid positions one could hold without rejecting Vatican II. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful. I think it would it'd be good to know the you know the nitty gritty. Like show me in the documents what it is you actually disagree with because what often happens and, and this is not you know I don't want to paint with a broad brush here. But what often happens is there's kind of a a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. That, hey, look, the church in the early 50s, early 60s was very strong. The church in the 70s is in chaos, and therefore Vatican II is a problem. And it just doesn't really follow logically, right? Because the world in the 1950s and the world in the 1970s is, is radically different. Like the, the world is plunged into chaos, and almost any Christian denomination you look at is going to experience the same kind of upheaval. So it really, it, it's hard to blame all of the world's problems just on Vatican II. So it helps to really say, okay, show me in the text what's wrong. Show me in the text where this is wrong. And then I think it's worth just talking about the validity of church councils. You know, well, do you believe that Pope John XXIII had the ability to call an ecumenical council? Do you believe ecumenical councils have the ability to pronounce on issues of faith and morals? Because those are things every Catholic has to believe in, regardless of their feelings about Vatican II. So you can get into, I, I hope, at least the bedrocks there and say, it's fine if you think things were implemented badly. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa talked about how badly the first Council of Nicaea was implemented. Uh, so it, it's okay to say a council's implemented poorly. That's different than rejecting the council itself. What do you think, Vincent? Uh, yeah, that's a great answer. Um, any uh, good literature to follow up with? Oh, it, so again, it depends a little bit on the topic within Vatican II. I know uh, Father Thomas Pink, and, or excuse me, Thomas Pink and, and Father Ron Rollheimer have a really good debate on how to understand uh, Dignitatis Humanae and uh, the church's teaching on religious freedom. Uh, there's a, a, a series of articles, you can also find uh, debates between the two men where they just try to make sense of, well, how do we interpret these things? 
how mu- how big of a change is this from what the church was saying in the 19th century? Those kind of questions. But like I said, when you you really have to have a a much more specific thing than just Vatican II writ large, I think, to be able to to handle it well. Yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest problem you hear is the ecumenic, uh, ecumenicanism of yeah. Vatican II. Yeah, yeah. Like in yeah. Nostra Tate. And Right, that we're, we're looking at the positive. But again, like you could go back in history and look at like the Fourth Lateran Council, what it has to say. You could look at the Council of Florence, which invited Orthodox and Coptic delegates. I mean, you can find all these times in history where the Church was very ecumenical. The Church has a very harsh reaction to the Protestant Reformation uh, in the early days of the Reformation. But if you look at the way the Church treated the Orthodox uh, historically, it's it's a different tone. There's a different kind of uh, style to it. So it would be a mistake to say, oh, the Church has never taken a warm tone to non-Catholics. It's just not true. You just need to know a little more about you know the history of the councils. And I would I would look at the Reunion Council, Second Leon, Fourth Lateran Council, uh, Council of Florence, and and look at the history behind those kind of councils. And you realize that this kind of ecumenism, rightly understood, is not actually that new. That finding what there is to praise and validate in non-Catholic forms of Christianity is is not an unprecedented move with Vatican II, even if maybe the degree to which it happens is higher at Vatican II. Okay, Vincent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. We got lots of folks on the line, uh, and, and we're going to have a couple lines open here when we go to the break. So you go ahead and give us a call if you've got a question. Eight 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 three one eight seven eight eight four. Promise to give you the real Joe Heschmeyer, not the AI version. Even though the AI version of Joe Heschmeyer turns out to be a pretty good uh, theologian. Uh, one thing I, I don't. I have to say this, Joe, before we head into the break. I cannot understand a person who says I, I reject most of what the Second Vatican Council taught. Like you, you can't. Like, read the 16 documents. Like, are you rejecting the part where it says Christ is the light of the nations? Or, like, <laughs> the, like most of it is right. such it's... basic, almost introductory-level Christian stuff that you might say, well, I really hate the, doc- you know, the document on, on religious liberty, or I really hate the document on ecumenism. But Vatican II is not hard to read. I mean, you can get the 16 documents and read them. And if you're at all Catholic, most of it is going to be stuff where you go like, yeah, yeah, okay, you might just roll over it and go, that's pablum, but it's there. Yeah, it's. I think it's probably worth saying, I think most of the people who say they reject Vatican II have not read Vatican II documents. And, you know, if they have, they haven't read them charitably, they haven't read them in the way they would read any other church document. Uh, they haven't tried to read them in the faith that they deserve. Now, there are exceptions to that. I'm, I'm not saying everyone, but I'm saying in my experience that this has been— much more the norm than the exception to people who think they reject Vatican II. They really reject the way the Mass is celebrated at their local church or in their experience, and the irreverence. And I also dislike irreverence in Mass, but still think Vatican II is not the reason why somebody's being irreverent in your Mass. Yeah, so there's a kind of a post-hop ergo uh, prompter hawk there that, that, I mean, we really really have faced disaster after disaster as a church since the Second Vatican Council, so you can, it's not that hard to go, must be caused by the Council. Yeah, I mean, you could also blame it on, like, NASA's creation or something. Yeah, because Um, that's right. You know, after NASA got created, everything kind of went downhill quickly. But I think someone would say, well, that probably isn't causally related. All right, we'll take a quick break. Be right back with more Open Forum with Joe Heschmeyer on Catholic Answers Live. 